This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guests consist of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. I'm going to be here for this segment with James Wood Collins, the CEO of Record Currency Management. Uh, James and I have got to know each other four or five years ago, and Wisdom Tree and Record have been working with each other for the last three years using record currency research um, to inform currency signals for dynamically hedged international equity indexes. It's a pleasure to have James here in New York and uh, get a chance to talk to him. Um, welcome to our show. Thank you, Jeremy. It was a pleasure to be here and it was a pleasure to talk currency. So thank you for the opportunity. I should note our discussion is not tied to the offer of save investment products and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wizard Chief affiliates. So you and I um, are sort of very like-minded in the way we approach the world. Um, you know, I've, I've talked a lot about international equities and the sort of currency bet when people go unhedged. Um, now, a lot of people think hedging is a quote-unquote active decision. Um, how, how do you guys at record tell people a little bit about your firm, what you do, and then sort of how you think about currencies generally? Sure. Thank you for that. So we're a, a specialist currency manager working mostly with institutional clients and implementing bespoke currency strategies. Uh, the largest part of that, some uh, $50 billion or so out of the total $57 billion of exposures we manage, is managing currency risk for institutional investors. And really, that's for investors who are looking to separate the decision between uh, asset classes to which they want to be exposed, individual securities and strategies within those asset classes, and then the currencies in which those assets happen to be denominated. And it's really just in recognition that we don't have to accept the currency of denomination when you make an investment decision. That's what creates the opportunity for uh, the sort of hedging overlay strategies that we run for our clients. And I mean, would you, how would you say European clients differ than U.S. clients in terms of just mentality on thinking about currency? Sure. I think there is, there is really quite a significant difference. Uh, certainly in, in a number of the European markets, certainly in Switzerland, also a number of the Scandinavian markets, um, certainly in Holland, we've long had significant institutional savings sectors that have outgrown domestic capital markets. There's therefore been a long history of investing internationally. Uh, that's true both in equities and certainly in fixed income. If you're looking at uh, corporate credit, you're looking at the full range of uh, sovereign duration, then the U.S. fixed income markets have been a, a very obvious investment ground for European investors for many years. So I think that uh, significant allocation to international assets has brought with it currency risk, and therefore there is a very long-established practice and process of managing that currency risk. Now, that doesn't always mean that every European investor hedges out all the currency in every asset. But there's a, a, a well-established uh, discussion to be had about 
um, the additional risk that currency brings, whether that risk might ever be compensated, um, and about how to think about the relationship between currency risk and underlying asset risk. That that has uh, materialized in different degrees in different markets. So in, in Swiss markets, for example, there's a very strong tendency uh, to significantly high hedge ratios across euro-denominated markets. There's quite a variety of practice. In the UK, again, there's a variety of practice, but there's really a, a familiarity with currency hedging. Um, one of the things I always enjoy about coming over this side of the Atlantic is getting to talk to investors about currency who may have let, you know, fewer embedded views. U.S. investors have long uh, had the privilege of sitting in the world's deepest and most liquid capital markets. Therefore, it's only really been more recently that things like global equity um, benchmarks have have gained prominence, um, increasingly looking at uh, real assets and other international classes. So the question of currency risk is is certainly rising up U.S. investors' agendas, and and we appreciate the opportunity to share our perspectives on that. Now, one of the things people say to me all the time is, oh, who cares about this currency hedging that you're talking about? It just all washes out in the long run. What's, what's your response Yeah, to that? I think um, that, that may be right. The question is, um, as a lot of uh, spectators have said about markets, is how long is the long run? I mean, in the long run, we're all dead, right? So you can't wait for everything to wash out in the long run. Um, and I think, you know, more seriously, if we look from, from uh, the perspective of some of the largest asset-owning institutions, so think of a classical defined benefit pension scheme. You know, they may well say that, look, we, we, we are going to be paying out pensions over the next 30, 40, 50 years. We've got a very long lifespan. So, yeah, we understand there will be peaks and troughs uh, in terms of currency movements, but we can see through those. And I think my question to that is, well, that's fine, but let's think about some of the other dynamics that affect how you run your portfolio on a shorter-term basis. So um, certainly in the States, you're going to see um, the the plan sponsor is going to be concerned about solvency within the plan at time horizons that are a heck of a lot shorter than 30 or 40 years. The market does not uh, look through short-term movements in plan solvency when they're looking at the sponsor's ability to meet that. Um, if you think of the, the sort of actuarial valuation cycles that have to be performed, you even think at a very individual level of the cycles over which the CIO's performance is measured or the investment team's performance is measured. All of these cycles and periods are a lot shorter than that. So I think really you can take this either from the kind of classical efficient market hypothesis of you want to run your portfolio so as to maximize the return at the minimum risk, and that would tell you that, broadly speaking, currency risk is unrewarded, so why leave it in your portfolio? Or you can think about the human decision-making processes around uh, looking at solvency um, and uh, looking at funding levels, and and both of those will really point towards at least making a conscious decision about managing currency risk and not just uh, ignoring it altogether. Yeah, I mean, I like what the other phrase you use, currency risk is unrewarded, um, sort of uncompensated risk. Why bet? I like to say, why bet on the euro going up forever? Like, do you have a view the euro is going up forever? And most people say, no, I don't have a view the euro is going up forever. But then I say, sorry, why are you betting on it? And then they leave, you know, their default to be unhedged. Um, but that they—it's a benchmarking question largely, which is yeah. they view the active call is the call to go hedged when hedged is neutral to some degree. Or- yeah, and I think I think that's right. Um, and I think in part that reflects the fact that historically um, the majority of investment options um, have included taking the currency risk. So therefore removing it requires an extra level of 
um, uh, operation implementation over and above that. And to your point about benchmarks, we, we also often find there is a reporting disconnect. So if a client, let's say, again, a large institutional client, they're running separate account mandates, they will get one set of reports from their custodian that detail their global equity portfolio and that will give the performance of that global equity portfolio measured in dollars. Now, of course, there are two factors going to that dollar performance. One is how the underlying equities have performed in their home markets, and the other is how the dollar has performed against their currency. But it's very rare to get those things split out. So they'll just get the perception that uh, you know, European equity markets have performed poorly. And it may be that European equity markets have performed well, but the dollar has been very strong. But that won't be obvious. If they do run a, a hedge, that may then be reported in a separate part of the portfolio. It's very hard to get those those two uh, attributions uh, to, to marry up with each other. So I think that there are a lot of kind of human perception reasons why hedging isn't more widespread. Frankly, it's hard to find really grounded investment reasons why it isn't more widespread, though. Yeah, I'm working my hardest to convince <laughs> convince people of the, the, the real truth there. Um, when you think about – so the other narratives out there is that it's, hedging is expensive mm-hmm. and they're thinking about sort of tackling these myths of currency hedging, mm. but – how do you when you think about is it expensive yeah i think i think let's start by thinking how might it be expensive right so so how is a hedging program normally constructed uh you'll be using um typically using something termed currency forward contract so a forward contract is an agreement to buy or sell uh, a particular currency pair at a particular date in the future and at a rate you agree today importantly uh, so for a, a U.S. investor, you, let's say you have euros and yen in your portfolio. Um, so therefore, you have natural long euro and yen positions in the portfolio, and your hedge is going to be to go short euro and yen and long dollar. And that's the instrument by which you'll bring about this hedging outcome. So what are the costs involved in that instrument? Well, I think there's really two, two ways to think about it. One is the transaction costs of the instrument itself, the bid-ask spreads embedded in them. Currency is the world's largest, most liquid transaction market, trades something like $5 trillion a day. That's, that's orders of magnitude greater than any equity or bond markets. And as a result, uh, transaction costs, so bid-ask spreads, are tiny. I mean, on an annual, on a rolling basis, it might cost you one, two basis points, so one or two hundredths of one percentage point to roll that program. But that cost is, is, is minimal. That's what we see as the true cost of hedging. There's, there's often uh, an additional factor that people think of as a cost of hedging, uh, which is really all around the interest rate differential. Now, the key point to recognize here is that different currencies carry different risk-free rates. So at the moment, you know, the risk-free rate in, in dollars is, is uh, you know, anywhere between sort of 2 to 3%, depending on where exactly on the short-term yield curve you're looking. And using the Fed funds as the sort of short-term rate compared to the ECB at, exactly. at the, at, for the euro. Yeah, whereas, where, you know, whereas at the ECB, we're looking at, you know, close to more you know, marginal negative interest rate territories. So the construct of a forward contract means that you, as the holder of the contract, either pay or receive that interest rate differential. So if you – because dollar rates are higher than – well, frankly, higher than all other developed market rates, whether it's Euro, Japan or Switzerland or even sterling, um, at the moment as a, as a US dollar investor holding forward contracts that are long the dollar, you're effectively picking up that higher yield in your forward contract. 
So in fact, now you're currently, as a U.S. investor, you're getting paid to hedge through the interest rate differential. Uh, yeah, you, p- you picked up over 100 basis points in 2018 because the Fed hiked four times when almost nobody else hiked rates. So let, let's go through the mm. three or four, the, the four biggest currencies. Euro, the interest rate differentials today, you're getting paid to hedge euros. Yeah, I'd t- almost to the tune of 3%. Almost 3%. The yen is... The yen is, the yen is, 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 is not far behind, certainly uh, between 25 and 3%, so pretty significant again. And the pound? Pound sterling, close to 2%. So Brexit, they got a little bit higher rates over there. Yeah, a little bit higher, but but still not as high as the dollar. And this, you know, this isn't this isn't a great surprise. It it reflects the you know different paths of economic recovery that these economies have taken, uh, you know, over the last several years. And so those three currencies are approximately two thirds to seventy five percent of a broad developed international exposure. So when we think about mm-hmm. the benchmark international, you're being paid around two and a half percent to hedge what people largely think of as their core international exposure. And so conversely, you could say if the currencies do nothing, mm-hmm. they're going to collect 2.5%. So unhedged strategies do not collect 2.5%. Exactly. So there's a quote-unquote drag if the yep. currencies do nothing. Yep. Now, the interest rate theory would suggest, you know, the academics would say yep. interest rate parity, mm-hmm. these currencies should appreciate by the differentials. Mm-hmm. But do yeah, they? So you say, well, so you would – yeah, so the expectation is that you don't receive that money for free, as it were, because the, what you hold in the spot market, uh, the theory of uncovered interest parity would tell you that's going to be eroded away. Uh, long-term reality is that not all of it is. Some may be, but, but by no means all of it. So we, in other words, we tend not to see uh, higher interest rate currencies depreciate by as much as the rate differential, as, as the rate differential suggests. So we would see, I think we would, we would see you know, a, a significant part of that rate differential is expected to be a persistent return over time. So much so, in fact, that in some of our return-seeking strategies, we would explicitly allocate uh, capital at risk, if you like, going long, higher-rate currencies funded by lower-rate currencies because you pick up that rate return and we'd expect that uh, to be to be uh, persistent over time rather than eroded away by the spot appreciation. Yeah. So we're, we're talking with James Wood Collins, the CEO of Record Currency Management, all about currencies and risk factors in currencies. And so just talking about interest rate differentials, that gets into mm-hmm. these academic studies on the mm-hmm. quote-unquote carry factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the co- and you can think about it as the cost of hedge or how much you're paid mm-hmm. to hedge. And in the developed world, you know, when you think about these systematic hedge ratios, carry is one of your important factors. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's other – the two others are value and momentum. Mm-hmm. How do you think about – and that's classic equity research is value, mom- momentum, carry. I mean, how do you think about those two factors compared to carry? Sure. So let's start with momentum. Uh, momentum in currencies isn't, isn't kind of materially different from, say, momentum in equities. Um, the, 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 the thinking behind is that for a whole series of reasons, uh, trends tend to continue. They won't continue forever, but they tend to continue. Um, and therefore, as, you know, a lot of folks will say the trend is your friend. So if we're looking at setting, uh, at, at setting dynamic hedge ratios, one of the things we will think about is, is the currency, has the currency been appreciating in the past um, and everything else being equal, you expect that, that appreciation to continue. Um, so that's certainly a factor to take into account. Value, I think, is sort of subtly different because um, every currency transaction is necessarily a, a, a pair trade. So thinking about what the sort of true value of a currency is compared to an equity is a slightly different concept because you can't think about the true value of a currency uh, absent any other currency. Um, but there are measures around that uh, – economic measures that help think about what the long-term sort of fair value of a currency should be. 
one of the most widely known that, that we certainly look at is something called purchasing power parity. So this is a theory that currency levels should effectively allow, certainly in economies of comparable levels of sort of wealth and productivity, that the, a, the, the same basket of goods and services would effectively cost the same uh, in one country as, as in another, certainly um, uh, both, in fact, for tradable and, and non-tradable goods. And one can, you know, one can measure whether that's the case. You can look at a basket of comparable goods and services in different uh, countries. You can determine whether at current exchange rates those are costing the same or not. Um, and then that can give you uh, an expectation as to whether the currency is sort of structurally under or overvalued. And, and the second part of the mechanism then is around expecting there to be some sort of correction. In other words, if a currency is structurally undervalued, if that undervaluation persists long enough, that can bring about changes in behavior, not necessarily investors' behavior, but in kind of real economic arbitrage-type behavior. So people relocating auto manufacturing from Japan to the States, for example. And that process... That's not just a Trump tariff situation? That's a, I, I think, that's I think, a real economic situation? I, I, think, I think, you know, there have been uh, auto, auto manufacturing has been moving to the States for a lot longer than, than some of the current debates around tariffs. Um, and, you know, we've always seen uh, economic activity shift to areas where, um, you know, where it has a comparative advantage, uh, but that shift itself can start to erode the comparative advantage. So how does that play out in currencies? Well, it can be the, the reallocation of resources to currencies that are relatively undervalued can bring about effectively a, a reversion of that undervaluation. So one way I like to think about it some, sometimes is that folks are very used to thinking of currency cycles. Um, and in fact, the dollar is a tremendously cyclical currency or, or in some ways it's best to think of every other currency as being cyclical compared to the dollar. You can almost think of the sort of currency solar system with with the non-dollar currencies being the planets that revolve around the, the sun that is the US dollar. So we're used to thinking about the cyclical behavior and actually that helps us think about decomposing a cycle into trend-following patterns which are kind of broadly speaking the sort of straight lines that, that, that we see from sort of peak to trough. But that's the concept of those straight lines overshooting fair value and then these real economic arbitrage forces, when that overshoot has become enough, pulling it back towards fair value. That's, that's where the value strategy plays. It's that concept of uh, trending or momentum causing an overshoot to fair value and then real economic arbitrage correcting that yeah. and then that correction going on too long. That's what brings about cycles. And, and, and you th- – think about like a 20% deviation from fair value PPP as a sort of one of the wider bands that has to shoot through before it becomes like a, let's say the euro at some point became mm-hmm. 20% cheap and it's getting yep. close to 20% cheap again. Yep. Um, and a lot of people say the dollar is a little bit overvalued yep. today as a broad basis. You got the opposite extreme. You say yep. Swiss franc is way overvalued, yep. but that's yep. always been way overvalued yep. and reasons for that. Yep. Um, I mean, where do you think you are in that dollar cycle? Um, we're in the dollar cycle. I mean, clearly, you know, we've we've had a we've had a good degree of appreciation, as you say, on a kind of broad index basis. It may be looking somewhat overvalued, but I think to think about corrections, you've got to start looking at sort of um, individual currencies. I mean, it's interesting. We do see quite a sort of mixed picture um, across uh, the sort of scope for correction with individual developed market currencies. Um, so it's it's sort of hard to generalize. Um, to your point about 20%, that is very much a kind of rule of thumb, but it's a sort of useful rule of thumb. Uh, if you're looking to set up sort of trigger points 
um, then I think 20% has sort of proved to be effective. Um, but it, it, you know, it should be emphasised. There's nothing kind of that. That's a sort of useful rule of thumb rather than the sort of imposed, uh, externally imposed requirement. Yeah. So you have like these this one signal which is carry, which is so strong in the dollar's favour, mm-hmm. and you have value which is sort of mixed across mm-hmm. a number of the currencies, mm-hmm. and then you have this like catch-all momentum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think one of the things that you and I talk about is sort of the aggregate. How much you know? So a lot of people benchmark to being unhedged. We've talked about sort of the minimum risk or sort of there's the, the no risk, no currency risk position is fully hedged. And then there's this half hedged mm-hmm. benchmark in between mm-hmm. that you could say is regret minimization mm-hmm. because you don't know which one's going to be yeah. better in, 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 in foresight. In hindsight, it's always clear. Yeah. But so 50-50 and the more hedged you go away from 50-50, in some ways, you know, these extremes can be predictive. Um, yeah, I think what, one way we're trying to think about it is um, effectively – we can we can try to make a selection for whether, when we think a a hedge is more likely than not to be profitable. Yeah. So I think certainly interest rates is is very clear because we know that if nothing if if the interest rate is is in favour of hedging, so if dollar rates are higher, which you said is the case today against all the sort of developed market currencies, then we know if nothing else were to happen, you as the investor will simply pick up that accrual from having the hedge in place. You don't need any further spot movement. Uh, clearly, if, if, the, um, you know, if the dollar strengthens further, so much the better. If the dollar weakens, then as you said earlier, you've got a sort of buffer within which it can weaken without destroying that accrual. So, so the, the, the interest rate signal is a very clear determinant of profitability in a hedge. Um, I think with momentum, again, we're trying to say uh, if that currency has been strengthening recently, then everything else being equal, you expect that to continue strengthening. So, again, that's an indication that the hedge uh, could be profitable. Um, and then the same value, I think we're asking ourselves, has the deviation become strong enough so that we would expect it to reverse? So out of those three signals, value is probably the one – is, is the only one that isn't binary, right? So in other words, interest rates will either be higher in the US dollar or in the, in the uh, overseas currency. It's conceivable they're going to be exactly the same to a fraction of basis point, but that's pretty unlikely. So that will point us one direction or the other. Momentum, one of the two currencies will have been strengthening against the other, so that points us in one direction. Value, there is a kind of neutral ground. You mentioned the sort of 20% threshold. There's, there, there's quite a significant area either side of fair value where it isn't evident that the elastic band, if you like, has been stretched far enough that it's going to snap back. So we do have a sort of neutral ground concept in, in when we think about value. Um, and in that would probably default, as you said, to the kind of half-hedge position yeah. as a sort of position of, of least regret. We, we've talked a lot about equities. And you know, one of the interesting things is just where the narrative is so different is mm. bonds, where yeah. the standard narrative is, why would I ever bet on the euro when I go buy German bunds at negative 50 basis points? Because, hey, because you could collect some carry and you're actually not so different than U.S. Talk about the dynamic today with carry that you earn from hedging the mm. bund. Yeah. And where you are compared to the tenure in the U.S. Yep, certainly. So um, I think you're right. There. I mean, the, the start point there is very few U.S. holders of uh, global fixed income would want to do so on an unhedged basis. And that's partly, I think, taking into account the role that fixed income plays in the investor's portfolio. Um, it is meant to be a low volatility, predictable uh, return stream asset. So introducing the unpredictability and the volatility of currency deviations is is going to be unhelpful. So even before you get to things like kind of interest rates, um, 
there are good grounds for consistently hedging out currency risk in, in fixed income. It's only in equities I think the dollar is always going to go down forever. I, it's funny. In, in, in equities, I think it becomes uh, – the thinking becomes uh, a little more confused. I think, I think to be fair to investors, in equities, the underlying volatility of the asset class yeah. is that much higher. The incremental volatility contribution is, is, is lower. Exactly. It's kind of harder to notice. Um, but there is a degree of uh, there is a degree of of sort of um, kind of peer group behaviour. In other words, uh, if the consensus, if the typical view is is to benchmark yourself to an unhedged index. Sorry to get back on yes. equity. So staying on fixed income. I mean, yes. what is the the dynamic in the markets today? Where we, you and I were talking offline about just the treasury yields compared to like sure. if you go by sure. JGBs. And so sure. talk about what some of the pensions are doing. Sure. So there's I think there's there's two dimensions to this. Right. The, the first is recognizing that. Um, the forward, the, the the interest rate priced into the forward contract is effectively adjusting that risk-free rate. So German risk-free rates are clearly, you know, well, eurozone risk-free rates are, are, are negative at, at the short end. So uh, German uh, short-dated bonds are certainly yielding negative yields. Uh, their U.S. domestic counterparts are yielding positive yields. So. In some sense, you can see that pickup in yield is effectively just kind of swapping out the risk-free element, and it's it's ensuring that something like a German Bund, which you'd also expect to have, you know, practically speaking, zero credit risk. If you've got zero credit risk, you've got the same duration. You hedge it back into uh, into U.S. dollars. It should look pretty much like a treasury at first glance. It sort of has this, you know the same similar risk profile. It should have the same role in your portfolio. So to some extent, that yield pickup is, is simply compensating for the different risk-free rates. I think what's really interesting there, and this is something that's newly emerged really in the last couple of years in the foreign exchange markets, is the way that interest rate differentials are priced in the foreign exchange markets is no longer perfectly matched to the way that uh, the, the, the money market uh, rate differentials are priced. I mean, you, we, we talked earlier about how in interest rate strategies, higher interest rate currencies don't necessarily uh, depreciate as much as a rate differential suggests. That is, in academic thought, held to be a failure of something known as uncovered interest rate parity. I think a lot of people will say, though, the, the one economic theory that for decades held perfectly true in real life was the principle of covered interest parity. In other words, the principle that interest rate differentials in foreign exchange markets should perfectly match those in money markets. For many, many decades, that held perfectly true, and it held perfectly true because banks, amongst other economic agents, could arbitrage between the two markets if gaps emerge, if, if, if a gap were to emerge, and that held them in, in tight sync. Now, there have been a lot of changes in the last few years, including around bank regulation and capital requirements, and that has allowed bigger gaps to open up between uh, foreign exchange market implied rates and money market implied rates. Now, bear with me because there's a punchline coming. The reason all of this is relevant is because what we now have is the ability for prices in foreign exchange forward contracts to get kind of pushed around by supply and demand, become a little bit divorced from those money market rates. And this is what creates a real opportunity for U.S. investors. So because there is more demand from overseas investors who hold U.S. assets to sell the dollar forward to hedge that, then the corresponding more limited demand by U.S. investors to, to, to buy the dollar – that effectively means, as in many markets, if you're kind of swimming against the tide, you get the benefit of that pricing in your favor. So if you if you are a U.S. investor and you're willing to, instead of holding treasuries, to hold a similar duration 
Bund or JGB, a Japanese government bond, and then you hedge it back into dollars, you're actually going to pick up the benefit of a more positive interest rate differential in that hedging contract than in the money market. So you can look at adding, you know, depending on, on, on uh, the maturity and the duration, the point in time, you may be adding 10, 20, 30, even more basis points to your yield in, in what's effectively a synthetic dollar deposit. So this is this extra 20 to 30 basis points of yield pickup that you, just because of the amount of hedging that's demanded from in Europe that or, you know, globally compared to the U.S. And and it's you gave the example of the bonds, but it's the same instruments that you would hedge if you're hedging equities. It's just not thought of in this covered interest rate parity terms exactly. because it's the same forwards that are being used to hedge. But exactly. there's this extra premium. Exactly. It's a yield pickup. It's a yield pickup. Now, you know, it won't be around forever. And to some extent, those investors who exploit that yield pickup are performing the same functions that banks historically did yeah. in arbitraging. And, and, and the, it, if enough investors are taking advantage of that yield pickup to effectively match the, uh, if you like, kind of the, the sort of supply uh, of dollars coming out of uh, investors in the rest of the world, then you'd expect those two markets to come back into alignment. So it won't be around forever. Um, but it is, a, it is a really neat opportunity that certainly a lot of uh, you know, global bond managers and others are, are paying close attention to. Now, we're running out of time, um, but we've talked mostly of things that apply for the developed world. And when we talked about carry value momentum, and, and I know in the emerging markets, we do some work together, and there it's different in EM. It's more, more of a momentum market than a carry and value market. Maybe talk about sure, what I makes think, EM unique. Yeah, I think there may be two ways of, of, of talking about this. One point I tried to make, and maybe I didn't bring it out enough, but is is that some of our qualifications around the sort of cyclical nature of developed market currencies really takes into account that you've got currencies that are at the same long-term secular stage of development. You've got countries at the broadly similar long-term uh, sort of productivity attainment. They may vary from year to year. They may cycle around each other. That creates a sort of cyclical behavior. When we're looking at emerging markets, we're looking at a fundamentally different uh, dynamic because we're looking at countries whose development growth, GDP growth, whose GDP per capita growth, so sort of productivity growth, is significantly higher than that of the developed market. So there's a catch-up process going on. And I sometimes think it's, it's from a currency perspective, rather than talk about emerging markets, we're better off talking about converging markets because those markets are converging with the developed world in terms of productivity. That convergence process alone is expected to make it profitable to hold the currency, maybe in the spot movement, maybe in that yield pickup. And it's worth noting that while we're used to dollar rates being high compared to other developed market currencies, dollar rates are still pretty low compared to local market interest rates in most of the emerging world. So what that means is the arguments for kind of consistently hedging out um, emerging market currency risk are, are very different. In fact, most investors would say that the default position logically is to hold emerging market currency because unlike developed market currency, yeah. it is a rewarded risk. And that, that's one where I would say, again, the narrative is, well, the, that it's cost high. That's when I agree. Like in, yeah. in EM, yeah. you know, the last two decades, some of the work we did with you showed 4% a year cost to hedge. Oh, yeah. And I mean, that's come down because of the Fed. So maybe it's 2% today versus 4 But you're but, still you're still giving away a significant yeah. part of the yield. And it is a it is a rewarded risk that you're giving away. And, and so... How do you think about 
momentum as the signal that works. Yeah, there. well, I think if 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 we think if if we, if we think back to those three signals we're used to in developed markets, again, carry isn't going to give us a lot of information because we're looking at, at, at sustained higher interest rates than than dollar. Value doesn't give us a lot of information because we know these countries have got different productivity levels. It's it's that gap closing up that you want to exploit. Momentum is the one though that's very interesting because I think a lot of investors like. Uh, picking up the, the effectively the yield pickup from holding emerging market currencies for most of the time, but what you want to do is then avoid being caught in a in a drawdown, either a country specific drawdown, like maybe we particularly saw through Turkey last summer, or kind of broader drawdowns that we've seen in prior periods, and that's where we think momentum can play a part because a momentum strategy um, can be calibrated to aim at picking up that drawdown early on in the process. Now, you'll never catch it right at the beginning because you need some of your signals to start flashing red before you put the hedge in place. And there's a risk, in fact, that you may, uh, you know, you may end up kind of predicting a drawdown that doesn't happen. So like everything else in investing, right, this is uncertain rather than a guaranteed outcome. But we're pretty confident that, that using a series of calibrated momentum signals can allow investors to take a much more tactical approach to hedging emerging market currencies effectively on a currency-by-currency basis, allowing them to remain in the portfolio, allowing that yield pickup and spot movement to emerge, uh, but then to put the hedge on in place and, and limit your exposure to drawdowns. James, it's been a fun conversation. We ran out of time, um, but uh, thanks for joining me on the show today. Well, thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed it too. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.